Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning, Harvest, and uh, thank you for joining us for our online Sunday service. Uh, before we begin, I'd just like to actually thank John Warden uh, for just sharing what God's been doing in his life. Um, I know it can be really hard when, um, as he was sharing, this, a stream of God's grace dries up and God is calling us to really trust him to, for, for him to lead us to a new stream. And so thank you, John, for just sharing about what God has been doing in your life and even in that struggle. So I just wanted to, to, yeah, again, say thank you. Um, so for, the, for this week and next week, I have the privilege of sharing with you um, just from God's Word. And uh, for you know, these two Sundays, um, I feel like as I've been preparing, God has been really placing on my heart uh, two passages. And so the passage uh, for these two passages, really there's this theme, uh, or maybe not a theme, but more God using an example of children uh, to really talk about fundamental truths about what it means to follow Jesus and, and even how God works in this world. And it's really interesting that God uses children in that sense because it's in some ways it's the, in these everyday examples that he shows us some of these fundamental truths. And I think it's just really interesting that, you know, for those that have, have children or sometimes we see in seeds, that it's easily sometimes just overlooked that, uh, that even in these kids there are truths that God shows us about who he is and about what it means to follow him. So anyway, so for today, I'd like to actually share with you from a passage. It's in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so when we read these verses, you know, it's really sometimes hard to get the real impact of them just by reading them by themselves. And I think as I want to do first is really share what was happening and what's going on with Jesus' disciples in this moment. And I believe by sharing this, we'll come to, to see the kind of the thrust of this passage and why it's this actually in some ways very astonishing what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this moment. And so let me begin with really just talking about what's, what's really going on, what's happening, and then we'll get into the fundamental truths about you know, what Jesus is sharing here about following him. So first, just a little bit of the context. Um, here, like right before this, when Jesus is sharing with the disciples, uh, Jesus actually takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. And this is in chapter 17. And when they go up on this mountain, Jesus then reveals to these three his divine nature. Um, you know, maybe some of us are familiar with this part of Matthew's gospel. But Jesus then shines like, like the sun. And, these, and, you know, Peter is just astonished at, at this is Jesus. This guy he's been following is is, you know, is divine in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I think for the purposes of what I'm going to share with you today, I just really want to focus on 
that in this case, Jesus picks three out of the 12. And then he actually tells these three that, you know, they aren't to share what's going on, what happened on this mountain when they come back with the 12 and with the rest of Jesus' followers. And so I just wanted to point this out because, interesting enough, like if you were Peter, James, and John, you would feel extremely special that Jesus picked out of the 12 and then out of all his followers, just you and two other people to join him. Uh, but then if you were of the 12 or other, other people, you would be like, wow, I guess there are some people that Jesus, uh, you know, goes with more than, say, other people. Maybe it treats a little bit differently than the others. Then the other uh, context I want to share with you is even further back in chapter 16. Uh, in the middle of this chapter, we see here that uh, Peter confesses to Jesus in saying that he is the Messiah. And uh, again, for the purposes of what I'm going to share here, don't want to get into too much of this, but just to really point out that after Peter says this, after Peter says that you know, Jesus is the Messiah, Peter then, or Jesus then tells Peter that he will be the rock on which Jesus will build the church. And so, again, if you think about it, if you were Peter, I mean, if I was Peter, I'd, my, my head would be in the sky. I'd be like, man, Jesus, this, this guy who I'm following, this guy who I think is the Messiah, he is saying that his movement, his church, is going to be built through me. And then if you were the other 12, right, you'd be like, oh, wow, this Peter, he is Jesus' right-hand man. Right. This guy is, is, in a way, going places. Right? Jesus has kind of called him out and said, Jesus' church, his, this movement that Jesus is starting, is going to be built through this guy. So really, you know, this, then, this kind of context kind of then takes place. And then the disciples now then come to Jesus at the beginning of uh, the chapter 18 and verse 1, and they ask, you know, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And... The reason why the context is so important is because we kind of see here a hierarchy building, right, among Jesus' disciples, right? We, we saw here that, you know, Peter, James, and John were chosen by Jesus to see his transfiguration. We see that, again, that Peter was the one that Jesus says he would build his church, right? So in, in sort of a hierarchy terms, right, we would say that Peter is, you know, number one, James and John, number two, and then the rest, right, are having to figure it out, what, what, the, what the ranking is. And so, you know, in corporate terms, you could think of it this way, is like, who is reporting to who, right? If Jesus' movement was really going to take off and there was going to be, you know, even today we know that there's hundreds of millions of followers, right, then how are they going to even structure this, right? There needs to be an organizational structure, right, to sustain the movement. And even when you think about it, what criteria do we use to understand who is going to be the head of this or that? You know, what are the leadership skills that are needed? Right? Or how much faith does someone have to have? Or how good a, a communicator does it require for you to be the leader of this or the leader of that? And I think this is why the disciples really came to Jesus and asked them the question. They wanted to know from Jesus' mouth, how would he rank them? Right? Obviously, Peter is his right-hand man, and James and John are coming in a close second, but how would the rest be ranked by Jesus? And what is really astounding is Jesus' answer. 
So if we look at verses 2 to 3, let me read those for again. We see Jesus' answer. He says this. He says, He called a little child to them and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus comes and, and says, Okay, here, here's this little child. Come over here. And he tells his disciples, unless you become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never be able to really truly follow him. right? And so I just want us to let that sink in for a moment. So it would be like, for example, if you uh, came up to either me or Pastor Dave or Pastor Frank and asked us, like, what, you know, what does a Christian look like? right? And you could ask that question. I think sometimes people have those kind of questions even I, you know, I've fielded some of those questions before. What does a Christian look like? And usually my answer is like, oh, a Christian, you know, follows Jesus, believes that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, or these kind of things. But what if instead I took a child from seeds and I said, here, this is what a Christian looks like? Or what if, you know, if you're asking Pastor Frank or Pastor Dave, they told you, and if you had children, they said, okay, bring one of your children over, and this is what a Christian looks like. Like, what would you think? I think it would be pretty, like, strange, if you know, to be honest, right? Like, if we thought, like, oh, this child, and if you think of it, if you have children, and you think of your child, and then as a pastor saying that this is what a Christian looks like, you'd be like, really? Really, this is what a Christian looks like? Especially if it's your child, because you know, like, all the different things about them, right? And, you know, their faults and how they drive you uh, crazy sometimes. But even if you don't, don't have children, you know, like, you just look at a child and you're like, this is what a Christian looks like? Really? But you know what's really crazy is Jesus goes even further. And he says this in verse 4. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only does Jesus say that we have to become like children to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, he even goes further and says like, unless you take the lowly position of a child, uh, you know, that, that's the way to becoming the greatest in this kingdom. And so, you know, using my previous example, let's say your question now is you come to say me and ask me, well, what does it look like to be, you know, a great Christian? Or what are some examples of great modern Christians? And let's say, uh, you know, if you were to ask me that question right now, I probably would tell you, right, Billy Graham, Priscilla Shire, right, Francis Chan, Rick Warren. Uh, and if you ask Pastor Dave and Pastor Frank, they'd probably, you know, say some other people. But, you know, those are some of the people that, you know, I probably would tell you. But what if, when you came to ask me, well, what are good examples of great modern Christians, I told you, again, to bring a child forward, and that this is an example of what a great modern Christian looks like. That is simply astounding. And I don't know what you would think. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think of this as an example of a Christian, but then to think of it as the greatest or a great Christian, that a child is an example of that, that is really, in, in some ways, hard to wrap your mind around. And, and I think this is what Jesus was trying to get at with the disciples. He was really trying to help them understand something about the nature of what it means to follow him is shown in this example of a child. And not only that, but 
to really become a, a, a like experience the greatness of his kingdom, you know, is found in this lowly position of a child. So with the rest of my time, I'd like to explore this question. How does taking a lowly position of a child lead you to the greatest position in God's kingdom? So how does taking on the lowly position of a child lead you to the greatest position in God's kingdom? So, you know, to start off with, you know, I'd like to at least explore a little bit about position or this idea of pecking order, right? Again, the disciples came to Jesus and was asking him, like, you know, essentially, like, when they're asking who is the greatest, they're asking, how would you rank us? And I think a really a good way of describing this, especially in, in our modern more context, is just this idea of status, right, status. And so, you know, I went on Google and I quickly looked, found a definition on dictionary.com and dictionary.com defines status as this, the relative social, professional, or other standing of someone or something, right? The relative social, professional, or other standing of someone or something. And so, it, again, this is, in a lot of ways, this social standing, right, or a professional standing of, in this particular case of someone, right? And you could think of it, status is really, in a lot of ways, everywhere, um, especially now with a lot of people getting vaccinated and things like that. I'm sure a lot of us are thinking of summer vacations, of traveling again. You know, and you know, to be honest, me and Faye are, are thinking about that too. We'll be traveling in two weeks to see my sister in Las Vegas. But as we think about this, you know, like a lot of times we're looking at, okay, well, do, what kind of status do we have with airlines? Or what kind of status do we have with hotels? And I'm sure since a lot of us haven't traveled, we've lost those statuses. And I still remember I used to have gold, a gold member status with United, and, and those were the days, you know, of just being able to get at the head of the line and things like that. It was pretty nice, I have to admit. Of course, my wife would call me a prince because I was so used to these kind of statuses. But on one level, that's, that's what status is in that sense. But then I think there is even more a subtle way of us experiencing status. In, in, actual, in actuality, like Pastor Frank really gave us a good example of that this previous Sunday. As he was explaining how when he walks into a room, he uh, kind of looks at all the guys in the room and, th- and thinks in his head, can I take this guy, right? And in, in a lot of ways, that question, can I take this guy, especially if you're another guy, it's, there's a sort of a status going on, a ranking that happens. Right? And in Pastor Frank's case, it's a, this ranking is based on if Pastor Frank can take this guy. If it's a yes, then that, that's you know, one kind of ranking. And if it's Pastor Frank can't take this guy, it's another kind of ranking. And no disrespect to, to Pastor Frank if he can't take certain guys. <laughs> but, but more seriously, um, it shows that you know, when we walk in room, we have this sense of status. And really, a lot of times the status, it's relative just even as dictionary.com kind of described it. It's our status is our own criteria. It could be by the clothes that people wear or by how they talk or by how they look or even what we already know about them. But most likely, you know, it's like a combination of all these. And, you know, a lot of times these form, and it's not like we have this specific ranking. And right now, for those who don't know, you know, the NFL has this, like, you know, kind of rookie draft going on. And or soon, and you know, like it's not like that where you have like uh, number one pick overall, 
Well, in a lot of ways, we have form opinions, right? High opinions of certain people and lower opinions about others. And these opinions are really based on our criteria of status. And so I just wanted to bring that up with you as this first point of just trying to at least recognize that in a lot of ways, all of us, when we look at people and interact with others, that there's this thought of status ranking that's happening in the background. And Jesus is really asking us to reflect on it, just as he asked the disciples to in these verses. So that was the first step. So then the second step really is now as we think about like the statuses, how do, how do children fit in this whole picture of status, of ranking? And when we think about this, I think it really helps to even understand how children were viewed uh, back in those New Testament times, right, during Jesus' times. And in some ways, it's actually probably not that much different. But really, I, there's this excerpt from a commentary on the, called the Gospel of Matthew by this New Testament scholar, R.T. France. And I found it really helpful as he describes how children were viewed. So let me read the excerpt for us. The instruction to become like children is thus not about adopting some supposed ethical characteristic of children in general, innocence, humility, receptiveness, uh, trustfulness, or the like, but about accepting for oneself a position in the social scale which is like that of children. That is, as the lowest in the hierarchy of authority and decision-making, though subject to and dependent on adults. And so as France, as Archie France points out, right, children are really in the lowest position in this hierarchy of authority and decision-making, right? And again, for those of us that have kids or work with kids, right, they are really dependent on adults, um, and rightfully so. I mean, if, if kids were left alone or these kind of things, they would definitely hurt themselves or even be taken advantage of because, you know, physically they're so small and they don't know a lot about the world, right? And especially as parents, your kids are under your authority and your decision-making. I mean, for example, if you as parents decide to move somewhere, you know, like you might think of your kids and, and try to th consider their situation, but the kids themselves, your kids don't have any kind of say in whether or not you'll ultimately move or not. That decision, that authority is for the parents to decide. And so then what does it really mean then as adults, as, for us as adults, to then take on the lowly position of a child? Well, first and foremost, I think it's important for us to really see that ultimately God is the ultimate authority and decision maker in our lives, especially for those of us that confess that as Christians, right? And, you know, it's no accident that Jesus calls God his father throughout the Gospels and things like that. Like that really this is not just religious jargon, that really Jesus in that way really saw himself under the authority of God the Father. And for, for those of us too, if we think about status and ranking, really ultimately, if all of us really believe that God is real and God is ultimately sovereign and in control of those things, all humanity is under God's authority and decision-making. And really, if we think about it, this is not just like a one-time decision, right? And sometimes as Christians, we might feel like, you know, I, in high school or college, you know, I, you know, pray the sinner's prayer. I profess that 
I want to follow Jesus and, and really follow him. Uh, but, you know, it's that while that is well and good, but really ultimately being under God's authority is a everyday decision. You know, it's one that we have to then really think about each day, whether or not we really want to live our lives under God's authority. In a lot of ways, there's this idea of wanting to constantly try to reorientate our lives so that really God's voice matters the most in our lives. And this really kind of flies in the face of sort of this, really how the world is now talking about things, right? With social media and with all these things going on, a lot of times the, the, the push of this world is really telling us that our voice is the most important. And I don't want to minimize that our voice is important. You know, I'm not trying to minimize that. But ultimately, God's voice, especially if we confess that we're trying to follow Christ, God's voice is the most important. Right? And I, I think sometimes we don't think about the consequences of what happens when our voice becomes the most important in our lives, when our voice becomes the only thing that we listen to. I think there's consequences like disconnection, where relationships get broken because we prioritize ourselves over those around us, whether it's our spouse or our kids or our friends. And then ultimately, we feel this sense of disappointment because people you know, don't get us or people sometimes just walk away from us. And we, we don't understand why. Why are we even in these situations? Because we haven't reflected on, have I really just been concerned about myself and not those around us? But when God's voice is at the center, we at least realize that there's more than just me out there, that there's more than just my own concerns or my own voice. When God's voice is the center, you know, we'd be willing to look at our own faults because God has seen our faults and still loves us. And when God's voice is at the center, our lives have more meaning beyond our own self-interest. So really this leads us now to this third and final kind of step in our exploration. How does taking on the lowly position of a child affect how we even look at our own criteria for status? Right? We first kind of talked about how status is really everywhere and sometimes it's hard to see, but it's really there. And then we kind of talked about, you know, what does it mean for an adult to take on this lowly status, at least initially recognizing that God's authority really is that kind of first step. But now then I want us to then think about now, how does it affect even how we view status? How it affects our, even our criteria for status, right? And so I'd like to ask you this rhetorical question. You know, where would you rank yourself based on your own criteria of status, right? Sometimes we think about other people and it's easy, but where would you rank yourself? in your own criteria of status? Would you rank yourself at the top, in the middle, at the bottom? And before those of you that think, oh, the answer is the bottom, of course, because Jesus talks about the lowly position of the child, I'd like to actually point out that Jesus really is trying to point out something different. He's really leading us in a different direction. I believe, actually, Jesus was really pointing out to the disciples and even to us today that the system itself is wrong. That the system of criteria that we've 
kind of placed on others and even ourselves is wrong and a lot of times backwards. Right? By taking the position of a child, he's showing us that our view of status, our criteria status is in a lot of ways upside down. Right? Where we think in this world, especially like for those of us that you know, are seeing the world as sort of a rat race while you, know, you always have to kind of get ahead, we see the powerful or those that work their way up the corporate ladder or those that make a name for ourselves as the top. And we view those like children or that are dependent or weak at the bottom. But I think what really Jesus is pointing out is that the whole criteria that we're using isn't the criteria that Jesus is using, isn't the criteria that God is using. That the whole system is actually a different system in God's economy. And so really to illustrate this, let me go back to the list I gave earlier about great modern Christians. Right? I mentioned earlier right, Billy Graham or Priscilla Shire or Francis Chan or Rick Warren, right? And really, how did I come up with this list? Well, I just thought about, okay, well, who are the most influential Christians today? Who, who has affected or influenced my life in a positive way, both in their teaching and by, by their lives? But, you know, what's really crazy, if you think about it, is, like, let's just take Billy Graham, for example. Like, Billy Graham, you know, through his teaching and his preaching, many millions of people came to know about Jesus. And if you think about it, right, if that is the criteria, then of course Billy Graham is probably one of the greatest Christians that lived in these modern times. But in God's economy, that isn't the criteria. And it almost, in some ways, sounds blasphemous, right? That in God's economy, how the number of people that is saved through your ministry is not the criteria of what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. What it means to be the greatest in the kingdom really is this idea of dependence on God, right? Going back to this, what R.T. France shared about children is that they're dependent on an adult, that they are under the authority of an adult. And in God's economy, in God's criteria, it is dependency on him that he is most interested in. And so it really messes with your mind, right? Because if you think about it, a lot of the ways that we look at the world, a lot of the ways that we see and that we rank people are all based on these criteria that isn't the criteria that God uses. And so ultimately, I think what really God is really both speaking to me as I was preparing and to all of us here at Harvest is just really asking us to take a closer look at how are we measuring and what criteria are we using to not only measure you know, our own walk with God, but also those around us. And I think when we even think about dependence, especially when we think about our own walk and, and sometimes how it's so difficult for us to really depend on God, I think it even comes back to status. Right? And, th- and this is what I mean. It's like a lot of us, we have worked really hard to get to the place that we are today. Many of us have studied long hours, We've taken classes, we've worked long hours in the jobs that we had, and, and we've made a life for ourselves. And that's, not, and that's a good thing. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But the status now that our life affords, in some ways, can be a trap. That the status that we think that we have to maintain is more important than really 
sometimes even our dependence on God. And this trap, I think, it really is clearly illustrated when the Israelites were actually going into the promised land and Moses warning them about this. And he warns them in Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 14. I think it's really helpful even reading this passage and when we think in these terms because it's just, in a way, it's, it's amazing how powerful these words, even spoken so many years ago, still resonates today. So let me read that. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 14. Moses says this. He says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I have been giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." You know, you see here, Moses was not warning them about the material wealth itself, the material abundance, but that they would forget the Lord their God. And really, they would forget God out of pride. Not pride in the sense that they felt like, oh, somehow I built everything of this. And I think a lot of us feel the same way. I think we, we definitely acknowledge that God has been gracious to us in the past and things. But pride in the present moment where our jobs or our houses or everything that we have, the abundance that we experience is enough. That we don't have to, we, in, a, in a lot of ways, we are, in some sense, a practical atheist because we don't have to turn to God for food, for shelter, for you know, our cars working, or for any of that. Because our whole lives, everything kind of just works, right? And I think what's really subtle about this is that these are not bad things. Our families being healthy, our jobs that we have, the houses that we own, these are not bad things. In the fact, these are great gifts that God has given us. But the subtleness of it is that they can lull us into a sense of pride, thinking that, you know, God is really a God of, of Sundays, a God of my quiet time. But then when I go to work or these other things, you know, God takes a back seat because yeah, I just, I'm good. I got to get this stuff done. And God is not in the picture in those moments. And, you know, and what's really crazy is that happens not just in the corporate world, which I've experienced for many years, but also in the ministry world, which now I've got to experience for at least a year or so. That no matter, it's not about what work that we do. It's more about where our heart is at and whether or not do we actually feel like we really need God in this moment. Or do we feel like, you know, God, I got this. I'm just going to get through this because this needs to get done. And I'll talk to you later, God, because, you know, I'll talk to you in my quiet time or I'll talk to you in this on Sunday because, you know, this stuff is more important. And unfortunately, that is really our pride talking and not our hearts really crying out to God in dependence. And so I'd just like to end with this question, really, is that which criteria will you use to measure your relationship with God? Which criteria will you use to measure your relationship with God? If we use our own criteria, I think it will lead us into this place where really at best we would stagnate in our faith, right? And the reason why I say this is because in our own criteria, anytime we use our own criteria, we can really in a lot of ways self-justify where we're at with God. We would, you know, 
look at our own relationship and if it's not doing well, we could say, well, you know, that's just where I'm at right now. I'm sorry, God, but I, d- I just can't give you more than where I'm at because it's our own criteria. Or, you know, we would just continually strive at the criteria that we set for us, ourselves, for this, our relationship with God. And as we continually strive, we just feel dead inside. We feel empty, right? And this is really what happens when we use our own criteria. But instead, if God is calling us to use his criteria about dependence on him as the measuring stick of what it really means to be, experience his greatness, his kingdom, right? Then this dependence, you could be as far from God as, you know, as some of us are. And that really all that God is asking us is to turn back and depend on him, even in our farness or even in our deadness, that God is asking us to cry out that we need him. And that is the true measuring stick of what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, I just ask that... um, that, Lord, that you would speak to all of us here, that, um, Lord, is just really reflecting on your word this morning, that you would help us to depend upon you and to see you, even in the midst of everything that's going on in our lives. Father, I, I pray that you would help us just reveal to us in a lot of ways the statuses and the criteria that we place in our own lives. And, Lord, may you speak truth into them and show us that your criteria is different that ultimately that what you want from us is not, you know, how many people we say, how much time we are serving your church or these things, but really dependence on you, just like a child. And so, Father, would you do that work in our hearts? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for the benediction. May God work in our hearts so that we may be able to really see the criteria that we are using in our own lives and help us to then turn back to him and use his criteria of dependence so that no matter where we're at, whether we're struggling or whether we're really enjoying what he's doing in our lives, that we would always cry out to him as our father and that we are his children. May God do this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.